Father, this morning we come to you. The great shepherd. The overseer of our souls. This morning, by faith, we surrender this hour, our body, our soul, our spirit into thy hands. And we pray, Father, cleanse us, sanctify us, and now as we wait at your feet, fill us with your word. Give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Give us understanding. And when we hear your word, we'll also hear your voice. We'll also have the faith to believe, the strength to obey, so that, O oh Father, the life of Christ will continue to increase in us. And our own self-life, our own selfish life, will die. So that you can lead us in triumph, in Christ, every day, Lord. Just wait at your feet. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We continue our study from the book of Ruth, but we are not doing a Bible study on the book of Ruth. We are just looking, using that text from Ruth to see how God redeems his people. Even those who have backslidden, gone away because of their self-will and made their own choices in the flesh, which we all did. How to find our way back? What's the way back? Like uh, Peter, when he began his worship, leading worship today, he read a portion from David Wilkerson's uh, devotion about maybe Job has prayed, you know, like Job, Satan has asked God for the last day's church to be tested, to be tempted, to prove to God that he will not have a remnant. And maybe God has allowed it. But God never allows so that we are defeated. God allows Satan to test us, to tempt us, so that he can prove to God, to Satan, that he will always have a remnant, a victorious remnant. And I, like I have said over and over again, the greatest set of overcomers in human history will come from the last age. Because no age has been tested or tempted like this age. So therefore, always, the greatest warriors, the victors, also should come. It doesn't automatically come. It depends upon how we respond to the word of God. Therefore, we gather, we study, we encourage each other. So Ruth is the book of redemption. How does God redeem? We saw also last week why we fail, why Israel fail, is when we hear the word of God, we do not mix it with faith. God says, they also heard the gospel. They also had the word preached to them, like we also. But they did not mix it with faith. Therefore, it was of no use to them. And we don't believe. We don't mix it with the word of God as we hear with faith and obey. It will be of no use to us too. We also saw last Sunday about grace and about grace in the workplace. Okay, Not disgrace, but grace. Whether you are a student, a housewife, or a working in an office, company, government, doesn't matter. There is grace to work hard. And Paul will actually say that he worked harder than all the other apostles. But he said, not he, but the grace in me. Grace makes you work harder than the rest. You should always go back from your company 
known as the hardest worker they ever saw. Okay, it doesn't matter what you are, whether you are a peon or the CEO, it doesn't matter. All it should be seen that you are a real, godly, hard worker. But along with work, Rama, there is also rest. But today we are looking once again back to the book of Ruth. And we know how that book begins. For those who do not know where it is, it's very simple. Joshua judges Ruth. And Ruth was judged as a overcomer. Okay? So scripture says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine. That's how the book begins. The time when judges ruled. What are the causes of famine? What is the cure of famine? We need cause. Find out what is the reason behind the famine, the lack that we face. Everybody faces some lack. Unless you are actually, truly in Christ and walking with Christ continuously, then you don't face lack. Though you may face physical, material lack, it doesn't affect you because you know you are full and you are complete in Christ Jesus. Okay, So when lack comes, whatever kind of lack comes, we need to look at the causes of lack and we need to look at what is the cure of lack. The funniest or the most interesting part of the cause and the cure of lack or famine whatever famine it is, is found in the most unusual place in the Bible, where no normal man would search for it. Because this is the highest point of Israel's glory, the zenith of Israel's glory. If you look at Israel's history, they reached their peak under the rule of Solomon. The most prosperous reign Israel has ever reached is under the rule of Solomon. And when they reached their peak... And when Solomon has built his palace, he's built the house of God, an incredibly magnificent house of God. He dedicates the house of God. It's an incredible celebration where the very presence of God comes, fills that house where the priests are not able to minister anymore. When all that is over, we know about all that is. And that night, God will speak to Solomon. That night, that very night, at the height of Israel's glory, if you want to make a spiritual map, that is their peak. After that, of course they will only go down. That's the peak. When you are at your highest point, God will come and speak not about prosperity, but about famine. The cause of famine and the cure to famine. And you will find it in Second Chronicles chapter 7 verses 12 to 15. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I've heard your prayer. And I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Okay? Personalize it, internalize it, spiritualize it. They had a physical house. We are the spiritual house. Each individual sitting here, God says, what is that? I have chosen you. For what? As a house of sacrifice. I have chosen you. From this day, I have chosen you. And your whole life should be defined by sacrifice for my name's sake. I have chosen you. As my house of sacrifice. Then he says, when I shut up the heavens. That's not what you want to hear when you are at the height. Imagine, board results are out. And you go and you're looking for your name. You don't find, you find, then you find your name at the top. 
You find at the top, you cannot believe it. I got the first rank. You jump, you dance, you give laddu to everybody. You come back in the night, you dream. And God says, when you don't get a job. Think about it, okay? That's what he's saying. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, what will happen? Famine will come. Or command the locusts to devour the land. Or send pestilence among my people. Strange place. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. Okay? So when famine comes, it's not natural. Circumstances or nature are not even the devil. But we have a God who causes famine. He says, if I shut up heaven, O locusts, to devour, O pestilence, diseases. Three different ways, God says, when judgment starts to unfold. Judgment starts to unfold. Three different ways. One, what is it? Shall we go? Okay. He says, first, I shut up heaven. Shut up heaven. You are facing lack in your life. You tried everything, but that area is barren. You're facing lack. Or I command the locusts to devour the land. There's one thing that you go through always. What is that? You struggle for provision. Struggle for provision. It's not that you're a bad worker. You're a good worker. You're a good worker. It's not that you know your resume doesn't look good. It is pretty good. But there is never enough. The locusts are devouring the land. Or I send pestilence. Chronic illness. Okay? Now don't feel guilty or anything. We're just looking at the word of God. Okay? We can do whatever we want. But if God is the cause, I'm not saying all causes of this is God, but if God is the cause, you cannot escape it or overcome it in any other way. There is only one way to deliverance and to restoration. And it is not my way. It is not your way. It is Yahweh. It is His way. It's no other way. If God is the cause, if the devil is the cause, there are different ways you can handle it. Different promises. If it's nature, natural circumstances, whatever, whatever it is, okay, you take contaminated food, you get food poisoning, that's a natural remedy for it. But if it is God who contaminated that food, you are in trouble. Okay, I'm saying. The devil tries something, you can rebuke the devil, cast him out, you'll still become well. You have to understand the cause. If it is God, there is no other way but His way. And what is His way? This is not for the world. This is only for His people. He says, if my people who are called by my name. He gives four things. He says, there are four things you need to do. Not one, not two, not three, not three and a half. Four. First he says, if they humble 
themselves. Second, he says, they pray. Third, he says, seek my face. And four, he says, turn from their wicked ways. Then I will. We will leave that aside because we never have to worry about God's part. Never have to worry about God's part because he's always true. He's always faithful to his promises. He always delivers. If I keep my side of the bargain, he will always keep his side of his bargain. And even when we don't keep our side of the bargain, scripture says, even when we are unfaithful, he is still faithful because he cannot deny himself. Israel may not enter into the promised land, but no one in Israel will ever die starving. They will die in the desert like well-fed calves. But they will die there. They will not enter into the fullness that was promised. Christians will not enter into the fullness of what is offered in Christ. But he takes care of them. Okay, so he's always faithful. We only have to look at our part. And we don't. Our part has four sections here. We won't, We don't have to look at section two, three, four. Leave it aside. There's no time for that. Only one. First thing he says, will humble themselves. He didn't say first, he didn't say pray. He didn't say seek first. He didn't say pray first. He didn't say turn from your wicked ways first. He says first, humble yourself. And the problem is, most falter at the first gate. What is it? Humbling ourselves. He didn't say I will humble you. He says you have to humble ourselves. It's a voluntary act. If my people call by my name will humble themselves. Okay? Humble themselves. Now we'll say, Lord, how do I humble myself? That's why we're looking at the book of Ruth. What is practical humility? Practical humility is the ability to follow somebody else. That's the first thing Ruth says, where you go, I will follow. I'll go with you. That you are a person who can be led. First sign of humility. You can be led. You can be led. God can put you under anybody. You will, you will be led. You won't buckle. You won't fight. To follow someone else, to listen to someone else. But do you remember how the book of Judges ended before Ruth began? How did it end? In Judges 21, 25, how does it end? In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone is king. When there is no one king, everyone is king. Jesus is everybody's savior, but everybody is their own lord. While the first message preached by Peter on Pentecost is, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him both lord and savior. He says, no, he's my savior, but I am my lord. I am a lord. So that's the problem. How does God bring deliverance to such people? Who choose each day what I will do? What is right? What is wrong? So they have to go through a circle of oppression in the hands of their enemies. That's the whole book of Judges. They will go through oppression. They will cry out. God will send a judge. Who will deliver them? The judge will be there for a few years. They will be fine. When the judge rises, Israel goes back into captivity. Again they cry out. Another judge rises. That is what it means. Each one is king in their own eyes. So the first step towards deliverance is humility. They have to humble themselves. 
But the sad thing is, many will die in their pride like Naomi. Because they don't have a humble root in their lives whom God can use to redeem them also. Naomi was very lucky. She was one of one of the luckiest people. She never realized it until later that to have a Ruth, a humble Ruth in her life, Ruth to her humility will become the vessel of redemption that overflows into Naomi's life too. But most people will die like Naomi, unredeemed. Because what is their block? Their block is pride. Well, the humble will say, like Ruth, in Ruth 1.16 will say, she arose, 1.16, not 6, sorry. 1.16 will say, where you go, I will go. She says, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you go, I will go. No conditions. The others, we don't even want to read. Can we really go there? To understand what humility is. Where you lodge, I will lodge. I'm not worried about my accommodation. I'm not worried about my accommodation. Where you put me up. I'll go where you go. I will stay where you stay. I don't know where you're going to stay. I'm not asking you beforehand, where are you going to stay? What kind of accommodation? Is there running water? Is there a geyser? Is there hot water and cold water? Is there breakfast complimentary? I'm not asking you anything. I'm not even asking you what kind of people they are. It doesn't matter. Where you send me, that people, my people. That people, my people. Lord, of people fail in their ministry is because when they come into the midst of a people, they live like aliens there. They live like aliens there. They always will try to retain the land and the culture they left over here. And they never really gel with the people. And you know what? It's all a sign where God cannot really break through. Break through. Okay. So the first thing is, can we go where he goes? Can I be led? Because only the humble can God lead. Only the humble can follow. That's what Jesus said about himself. About himself. In John chapter 6 verse 38 he said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will. My own will. The will of him who sent me. I have not come to do my will. I have come to do another one's will. I will follow wherever he leads me. It makes no difference. That's what I asked in the pastor's conference in all those cities. All those cities. I asked them. Do we have the humility of Jesus Christ to leave a crowd and walk through the day for one woman? Because today popular preachers, first thing they will ask is how big is the crowd? What is the gathering? Before they will go. While the very king of heaven came to do his father's will and will walk through the heat and sit by the wellside waiting for one woman. Because he did not come to do his will. But he came to do another's will. Can you be led? Can you? People are in the ministry. Can they be sent? Can they be led? Will you go? Will you go? That's the question. Will we go? The humble always does the will of another. Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 11. 
and verse 28 and 30. He said, come to me. All you labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Come, come, come. He says, I will give you rest. Then why are people restless? Honestly, why are Christians so restless? Here is a God who says, come to me and I will give you rest. And we know what it means. He told Moses, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. That means the very presence of God is with us. But what is the problem? The problem is, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You have to follow me. You have to be led. Why don't we have rest? Because I don't want your your yoke. I don't want your yoke. I came here to give you my yoke and pull it for me. I did not come to take your yoke upon myself. I have come in great devotion with my prayer list and say, Lord, these are my needs. Put your seal on it and answer it. You take my yoke and you better follow me. I have not come here to serve you. I have come here so that you may serve me. We don't say it that way. We'll just take a look at our prayers of last week. He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Like I followed my father. You follow me. The minute we hear this term yoke, immediately we fight. Because we know that means how much control do I have to give up? How much control do I have to give up? How much control do I have to give up on my life? Till then we are, till it comes to control, we are very good. Lord, how do I earn eternal life? Jesus said, keep these commandments. He said, I have kept them from my youth. Jesus looks at him, he loves him, and he says, you know what? There's something still holding you back from following me. Sell your wealth and follow me. Suddenly all his religiosity vanished. He got up and he walked away. Why? He was not willing to take Christ's yoke upon himself. Now it may not be riches for some of us. It could be something else completely different. If you're a young person involved in a relationship which God says, no, it could be that. You come to God and says, I want rest. God says, leave that and follow me. You say, no. Oh, that? It could be anything. Anything. A loose tongue, an angry attitude, short temper, whatever it is. God says, you leave it. You take my yoke upon yourself. You can follow me and you will have rest for your souls. You will say, but uh, I like it. Do you know what God tells Israel through Isaiah? In Isaiah chapter 58 verses 3 to 4. Why have you fasted, they said, and you have not seen? Why have you afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. He said, you are asking me this question. Why are you not answering my this? I'm going through all this. I'm fasting. I'm afflicting my soul. But you take no pleasure in my fast or my prayer. The problem, he says, you know what? While you are fasting, when you come out, you are afflicting your workers. Afflicting your workers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. What is God saying? Because people all say, I fast, I pray. I fast, I pray. God says, you are fasting, you are praying, but you are finding no answer to your prayer. Have you just checked 
your own life while you're fasting. Because there's no humility in your fasting. Look at verse 9. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing finger. You should read the whole chapter actually. Question is, can Naomi redeemed? No. Listen to a malicious talk and a pointing finger. I went full and I came back empty. You have dealt harshly with me. You, 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 you. God says you can fast, you can pray. I will not hear from high because you don't take that yoke from your midst, that pointing finger and that speaking of wickedness. He says. People come, honestly, all around the world in churches, right after fasting and prayer and then start fighting at home. You have to see how church committees fight over fasting and prayer, during fasting and prayer, and after fasting and prayer. Why? What's one thing that is missing? Humility. They fast, they pray, but they don't humble themselves. Even when it comes to salvation, let's leave that aside. Let's look at salvation before we come back. Salvation. Why do you think millions upon millions will end up in a godless eternity? Let's call it hell or the lake of fire. Millions, multitudes. Why? Question is, didn't Jesus pay the price for everyone? Chandana, did Jesus pay the price for everyone? Why? An evangelist in the past century or before was having a meeting in London. Every night he used to preach three days in a row. And then there was a young man listening, 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 listening. On the third day, when he wanted to talk to the evangelist, the evangelist was rushing because he had to leave for another town. So this man followed him and caught him at the railway station. And he reached there, the train was about to move, move. And he cried out to the evangelist, what do I do to get saved? What do I get to do? They will say, the evangelist looked at him and the Lord gave him an answer. He says, Isaiah 53, 6. Bend down at the first all and rise up at the last one. Humble yourself before the first all and then rise up at the last. What is it? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He says, bend here. I am one among them. Most people will not bend here. They will not bend there. Most people will not bend there. We struggle there. No, no, I didn't go astray so much. I'm not such a bad sinner. I'm not so bad. Remember? Wednesday we looked, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee went home, dignified. The tax collector went home, justified. Listen to our own prayers. We want to sound very dignified. I'm not such a bad guy. That's what the, that's what scripture says, the Pharisee prayed to himself. This is what I am, this is what he is. This is what I am. This is what he is. Look at me. 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 
We even teach our children those rhymes in school. Policeman, policeman, don't arrest me. Arrest him. Why? I stole silver. He stole gold. I'm not so bad. I only took silver. Why are you coming after me? That guy took gold. We are not able to bend here. If we are able to bend here, then we will be able to rise there. All. All. Many, many stumble at the gates of salvation itself. That's why Jesus said, I have not come to save the righteous. I've come to save the sinners. Honestly, the biggest stumbling block for Christianity in India is the righteousness of the religious people. The righteousness of the religious people. Very difficult. So you will see all the poor, the marginalized who have been told you are a sinner. That is why you are caught in this caste for the past 20 generations. They receive the gospel when they realize I am a sinner and Jesus came to save me. Well, the others who have been told you are up here because of the good works you did in previous generations wonder why do I need a savior. You see, our own righteousness becomes the block from us humbling ourselves and to be included in the whole mass of humanity. All, whatever color, whatever stripe, it doesn't matter, whatever nature of crime or sin, all, I am in that group, Lord. I went astray, I have turned, and I went on my own way. No defenses, hands up, I surrender. And God says, salvation has come into your house today. So while Nicodemus will walk away in the dark, the Samaritan will run in the light. When the disciples who walked him for years will squabble, then how can anybody enter into the kingdom of God? Zacchaeus will just walk into the kingdom of God. Because God says, for the humble, it's very easy. Very easy. If you're willing to bend yourself, the door passage is very easy. But if you're not willing to bend, oh, straight is that gate. And narrow is that way. So Naomi, it's not going to go anywhere. But Ruth, so easy. Because she is humble and she is lowly. So the process continues if you study the Old Testament. And so many people end up like Israel in the promised land. Ruled over and over by the same powers we are supposed to conquer. Why? Because we, I mean your deliverance is so so easy. So easy. All you have to do is get up. Go to your pastor or one of the elders if you are a woman and say, Auntie or pastor, this is what I have done. I want my freedom. You are free. But you won't do that. You will pretend to be religious. And be in all the activities and are still bound because you are not willing to humble yourself. Humble. Act of humility. You are free. One second you are free. Zacchaeus was free in instances from all whom I have stolen. I acknowledge I have stolen. And half the wealth I give to the fear. Jesus said salvation has come into his house today. You are free. Go home free. You are a free man. But he was humble. He was humble. While the young rich ruler is listing out all that he has kept, this man is listing out all that he has not kept. That's the difference. 
That's the difference. We don't stand before God and list out all the things we have done. When we stand before God, the judge of all flesh, we list before him all the things we didn't do and say, Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. God says, you're free. Go home, justify. Absolutely no issue because it has been laid on him. Your iniquity also, you are free. You can go. That's the everyday process. No justification before God. You can walk free. So that's the process what we see in Israel, we see in the church. The very powers they are supposed to rule, rules over them. So disobedience to God's commands is the reason why God must chastise us, sometimes discipline us, because we do not allow the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives, and we do things our own way. Not in all areas, but often many areas. Some Most Christians don't walk in total disobedience. They don't. They walk in obedience. Otherwise, they wouldn't be here. But they walk in partial obedience. Do they come to church? Yes. Did you go to church? Yes. Uh, Let me make it a little more clear. Did you go to church on time? Uh, um, uh, No. Did you go to church? Yes. Did you go to church on time? Uh, I was a little late. So was your obedience complete? Now, if it's once in a while, it's okay by some chance, some. But if it's regular, it's partial obedience. Why does partial obedience come? Why do we get a very light view of our own sin? Why do we get a light view of our own sin? That's what God told Israel over. Destroy the Amalekites. Destroy the Canaanites. Leave nothing alive. Kill father, mother, brother, sister. Nursing baby of the Canaanites. Kill them all. And we say, oh, what it is? God says, spiritually apply. Don't go around killing people. Every form of sin, fight it. Be very serious about it. Jesus said it. I didn't say it. Spiritual application. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that is one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. I would tell you literally, if you cannot overcome porn, pluck your eyes out. Why do you want to go to hell? Take it out. At least you will stop watching. You want to go to hell with both eyes? Or you want to go to heaven where your vision will be restored? That's what God is saying. If one of your members perish then from your whole body, cut. some of you need to cut your tongues off. You will have rest in your life. Then don't start writing and texting what you can't speak. It's simple. God says these are the things that we need to be very serious about. Because these are the things that will take you to hell. One member of your body which is not in control, God says about the tongue, can take you to hell. One member of your body, which is your ear, can poison your whole body and take you to hell. Like I said, some people, when they go to hell, it will be very interesting. Everybody won't go the same way. Some people are going tongue first. Some people are going ear first, because that was with what they sinned. And that is pulling them down. The whole body is trying to rise up to heaven, but the ear is pulling them down. And the weight of the ear is more than the whole body, because you sinned all your life with your ear. Jesus is being very, very clear and very, very practical here. He says, deal with these things with fervency of your heart. 
deal. He says, those seasons of ignorance, he says, I overlook, but now that you know, and you understand what is important for God, deal with those things very, very seriously. And you will see, this is the history of Israel. They don't deal with this. This is the history of the church. And it becomes our history. A philosopher called Joe Santiana said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. From partial obedience, what do we do? We move now to compromise and cooperation with the world. In Judges chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you from Egypt, brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? He says, I kept my word with you. Bochim means, what is that? Where is that place? Gilgal to Bochim. I brought you from Gilgal to Bochim. Gilgal is a place of consecration. Bochim is a place of tears. They are crying, Lord, why have you lost your victory? He said, you have lost your victory. Not because I broke my covenant with you, but you never obeyed what I told you to destroy those things in your life which you need to destroy. Now you are flooding your altars with tears, but you are being ruled over by entities you should have destroyed when I told you to destroy. Partial obedience lead to subjugation by the enemy. On the other hand, what did we sing this morning? All victory songs. That should be our songs even in prison. Silas and Paul must have been singing victory songs. Victory songs. Let God arise and his enemies be scattered. The chariots of God are tens and thousands. Fear not. What kind of songs they must have sung over there that for God to rise up and literally move into the prison with them and set everybody free. Songs of victory. Not songs of defeat. But what happens? We don't obey his voice. And God says, this is the result. And from there, where do we go? We move into compromise with the world. Chapter 3. Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites. Whom do we dwell among? The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Marathamites, the Jacobites. Okay? I'm just kidding. Okay? There are many Hittites still today. Okay? Okay? And what did they do? They took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons and they served their Gods. We have to go to the world. We've been sent into the world. But remember how you go into the world. We don't live among them. We don't live among them. Compromise leads to, now what? Close relationship, intermarriage leads to compromise to the point, now they are serving the gods of their spouses. That's the problem. That's the problem. We see the same thing in the new covenant where God will tell the exactly the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 17 and 18. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord. Has he changed? No, he hasn't changed. He's the same. He says, don't, 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 he says. And we struggle with worldliness. Our struggle is with worldliness. The 21st century struggle is with the worldliness. We are sanctified by the truth. Yes, that's why we come into the church. We don't come into the church to be tickled. 
No, we don't. We come to the church to be challenged and to be sanctified by the truth. And Jesus said, my word is the truth. Father, sanctify them, set them apart for a holy use. They have come from the world. I have called them from the world and I am setting them apart for your use and sending them back into the world but sanctify them. How do you sanctify them? God says sanctify them by your truth and your word is the truth. So you come on Sunday morning here and you have to be sanctified by the word that you receive and allow the word to cleanse you, purify you, sanctify you so that you can go back tomorrow to your schools, your colleges, your workplaces as sanctified vessels. Back. You have to go back. That's where our mission is. That is where our place is. We are not supposed to spend seven days in the church. Then the kingdom could have been taken away 2,000 years ago. No. We are sent into the world as sanctified vessels. Sanctified. And what does God say? There. He says, even I practiced it myself. Scripture will say, he sanctified himself for the sake of the disciples. He has a role model. He was a mentor. He was mentoring his disciples. There were so many things which Jesus did not have to do. He didn't have to do. Because he did not need to do. He was not fighting the way we were fighting with temptation. Because he was overcoming every day. But he knew he has to lead an example for their sake. Like Paul says, all things are permissible. All things are not beneficial. So he knows I have to sanctify myself for their sake. Because if I do something else, they may try to imitate me. And they may not have the strength to overcome. Therefore he says, I have sanctified myself for their sake. He was humble. He was meek, absolutely humble and meek in the way he walked with his God and showed his dependence upon his father to overcome the temptations all of us face. Because scripture says he was tempted at all points. In Luke chapter 5 and verse 16, scripture says, So himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Why? Why did he have to do it? Because he knew, if I have to overcome, I need to be alone with God and spend time with God and be set apart with God so that I can go back to the world and the world will have no effect on me. Do we? How many times have you set apart this week, last week, six days, set apart with God and prayed alone, one-on-one? Because not because I am interceding for somebody. No, I am interceding for myself. Lord, I am weak. I need you. When I go out, I am just like anybody else. I am not smarter or stronger than anybody else. I need you so that I don't stumble when I go out. Did we? Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. Scripture says, Now which came to pass in those days, he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night to pray to God. Did we? Did we? And we we think we will overcome? We think we can fight this battle on our own without the strength of God? If the very son of God, this was his practice. He knew he needed to be alone with his father before he could go into the world and remain untouched by the world. He was humble enough to recognize it. That's the key. He was humble enough to recognize his own weakness in the flesh. The very son of God who came in the flesh knew that his flesh, there was nothing good in it. Therefore he knew, I need to be with my father. He set apart times regularly for that.
Are we poor in the spirit? The first thing Jesus says on the Mount on Sermon is, Blessed are the poor in the spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Poor in the spirit. It's almost taken a negative connotation now. I ask everywhere where I teach, I ask, are you poor in the spirit? Pastor, how do we know why you are poor in the spirit? It, says, it will show your dependence on two things. Check your prayer life, check your word life, you will know whether you are poor in the spirit or not. If you are poor in the spirit, you will spend time one-on-one with God in prayer. If you are poor in the spirit, you will say, even if I miss my three meals, I am not going to miss this because I live on this. You will know whether you are poor or not. The rich don't need a prayer life. The rich in the spirit don't need a word life because they are rich in themselves. But the kingdom of God belongs to the poor in the spirit. Because they recognize, I cannot do without communion with God. I cannot do without his word from him. I need it Lord without you. I go out, I am finished. I am done. And he himself was poor in the spirit. That is what he is telling us. That is what he is telling his disciples. Learn of me. Learn of me. Learn. 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 That's they saw it. That's why they are looking at all his working in the world. Untouched by the world. They see all this glory. People falling at his feet. Wanting to make him king. He's not bothered by any of those things. And they look at him and say, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. We, we, we cannot handle this. We cannot handle this. We see you handling it. And we know the secret is your prayer. Your prayer life. He gives them little power. They go. They do a few miracles. They come back. leaping. Lord. Even demons are fleeing in our name. He says don't get too excited. Be grateful your names are written in the book of life. Just be grateful you are saved. Just be grateful that by grace and grace alone you are saved. Otherwise, this can get into your head and soon you will stop depending upon God. That's the trap we get in. Are we poor in the spirit? We saw Luke chapter 5 verse 16. What is it? No, no. Luke 5 verse 16. We saw Jesus prayed on his own. He spent time on his own. Praying on his own. He himself often withdrew into the wilderness. If he needs it to. Tell me, tell you church. You don't have to go into the wilderness. To look for one whole Hyderabad is a wilderness. Okay. But you need to spend time. Young or old. You need to sh- shut yourself apart and say Lord. I need you. He prayed alone. Regularly alone. Luke chapter 9, 28. Now it came to pass after eight days after these things that it took Peter, John and James went up to the mountain to pray. What does it mean? He prayed with others too. He was not this single I only pray with myself. I don't pray with anybody because you are not up to my prayer standards. Mm. You know, I, I, I only pray with people who have reached my level. He says no, not me. I can pray with Peter. I can pray with John and pray with James. Even when they fall asleep, I'll continue praying. But I can pray with others too. He prayed with others. Matthew chapter 19 verse 13 says, Little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. He prayed also for others. He prayed alone. He prayed with others. And he prayed for others. That is his humility. That's why he's a humble man. That's what we learn of him. Learn from him, meek and lowly, even in his prayer life. And his word life, 
We have heard enough about his word life from Isaiah. Morning by morning, you awakened me. I did not turn like one rebellious. Therefore, you have given me the tongue of the instructed to give them a word to lift up those who are weary. I have a word because I myself are dependent upon the word. Therefore, when I was weary, you lifted me up, O Lord, with the word. Therefore, now I see another one weary. I am able to lift them up also by the same word with which you lifted me up. Many do not have a word to lift others who are weary in your schools, colleges and office places because they have never experienced the word of God that has lifted them up. That's the reason. That's why when people say, you will say, I'll give you my pastor's number. Because you have no number. That's not what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, if I am right. He talks about comfort. In the 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Pastor 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Yeah. Chapter 1, verse 3 to 4. Blessed be the God of our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. There he calls God, the God of all comfort. And what he says, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Did you see it? He says, when you were in tribulation, you received your comfort from me, my word. And now, when you see others in their tribulation, you have a word of comfort to give them. What is that comfort? The very rich comfort which you receive from God, you pass on to others. Now you know what? It is not your comfort that is going. It is His comfort going through you. That is how the word sustains. That's how the word sustains. That's what God is talking about. Where are we? Do we have a prayer life? Do we have a word life? Even the apostles knew this. In Acts chapter 6 verse 4, when the first trouble started over food in the church, the first thing they say is, no, 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 no. We are not getting entangled in this. There are many people who can handle this, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What will we do? We will set ourselves apart in seeking the face of God and then delving into the word so that when we go, we have a word to give to the people the people. I'm not going to run after this. I'm not going to run. Everywhere I go, I have to tell the pastors, tell me your schedule. I look at your schedule. What do you have to give your people? Because your schedule, there is no time with God. This meeting, that meeting, this not, I'm not talking about cottage meeting, this meeting, then counseling session, then home visit, and hospital visit, prison visit. Where did you spend your time with God? Where is your time for God? There's no time. So you have nothing to give. You are running on empty. You are struggling. I say I come and teach you stuff which is basic. Which I have taught 15 years ago. And you say we never heard anything like this. And you have been in the ministry for 20 years. Why? Not that I am special. But the key is here. How much time did you spend with the word? How much time did you spend seeking the face of God? Because we have nothing on our own to give. That's what Paul says, I did not come with eloquence, with human wisdom and all. He says, I came with fear, with trembling and the power of God. With the power of God. And it's true for everyone. Irrespective of what you do, everyone is a priest in the new covenant. That's the only way we can go safely into the Canaanite world. Otherwise, the Canaanites will swallow us. And so many have been swallowed by the Canaanites. That's why so many people in Israel look like Canaanites. 
They act like Canaanites, they talk like Canaanites, they dress like Canaanites, they eat like Canaanites. And then they come on Sunday morning and say, God of Israel, have mercy on me. God says, which Canaanite is singing today? Canaanites take us over. Why? Because we never set us apart, sanctified ourselves, never set us apart in prayer, in truth, and we play religion like Israel did. And God says, I did not come to start a new religion. I came to redeem people. Redeem people. There are stages, let me tell you, study scripture carefully. There are stages to spiritual decline. The first step is this. James chapter 4 and verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know friendship with the world? How do we start? We start with a little friendship with the world. Little friendship. Okay. What do we do? We start with a little friendship. We start a Facebook account first. Okay. And we get all our, we have, some are very smart. They have two um, accounts, chat or Facebook. One for the world, one for the church. In the church, it will be all scripture and hallelujah. Praise the Lord, brother, sister. On the other side, it will be a different story altogether. We live this split life. Lord of Christians love split life. There's a story told about a young man when the civil war was going in in America. You had the Union Army and the Confederate Army and he lived in the border. So he didn't know what to do. So he decided, I will wear the pants of the Confederate Army and the coat of the Union Army. The problem is when the war started, the Confederate Army shot him in the rear and the Union Army in the chest. And that's how believers live. They have two accounts. One for the world, one for the church. They get hit by God and they get hit by the devil. And they say, why am I lying over there? God said, because you wore two uniforms. I told you to be single. You know, That's what, we start with a friendship with the world. But we don't realize it is enmity with God. Whole Monday to Saturday we walk like an enemy of God. Sunday we come and I am friend of God. I am Abraham's child, friend of God. I am an enemy of the world and we sing all that songs of victory. God says, hang in there. Hang in there. It doesn't work. That's where we begin. Friendship with the world. We are friendly with the world and the things of the world. Then what happens? Stage two. James will say that in 1 and verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is to visit orphans and widows in their, hum, in their trouble, live it there, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. What do we do? We go, we get friendly with the world, and we come back spotted by the world. We go into the world wearing nice white clothes from Sunday. Monday we go into the world and come with spots. The world has thrown some mud on us. We come back, how? Now we are spotted by the world. Friendship in the world leads to, now we are spotted by the world. That is step two. And we move to step three, which John will explain in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15. What do we do? We now, it was earlier it was only friendship. Now we love the world and the things in the world. Love the world and the things in the world. We start loving the world. In the process, you cannot love two things. That's always a problem. When we start loving the world and the things of the world, we automatically start losing the love of God and the love for the things of God. It's automatic. You cannot have both. You can have only one. 
When one grows, the other will die. When the other grows, this one will die. So what happened? We first had a friendship with the world. We started getting spotted by the world. Now we love the world. And we move to stage 4, which is Romans 12 and verse 2, that we become conformed to this world. We now think like the world. And the word is no effect when we come and sit. Doesn't matter who preaches. Jesus himself comes and preaches. It is of no effect because our mind is now conformed in the pattern of the world. It's like water on a duck's back. It keeps on falling. It keeps on rolling off. Why? We first were friendly. Then we got spotted. We now start loving the world. Now we are conformed to this world. We are not even able to discern a simple speech. Ah, did you listen to Obama's speech on his inauguration? Such a beautiful speaker. Did you listen to Trump's speech on his inauguration eight years later? How ah, why did he sound so harsh? Because we have no discernment. When Trump spoke on his inauguration, and Obama spoke on his inauguration, Obama in his inauguration speech, if you listen carefully, spoke 49 times and used the word I, 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 I. When Trump spoke three times, he said I. Every time he said we, 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 we. So who is humble? Well, the world considers one humble and this arrogant. But did you have discernment to see who is actually humble? No, we didn't. Because we have been conformed to the pattern of the world. Now we are not able to even to discern anything because our mindset has become conformed to the pattern of the world. So when we are now making choices, our choices are not defined by the word of God. Our choices are defined by the world. Then there is only one more level left. Then God disciplines us. He says, okay, I have to discipline you. I have to chastise you. Because I did not redeem you with gold or silver. I did not redeem you through the tradition of your fathers or religious systems. I redeemed you by the precious blood of my son. And I am going to chastise you. I am going to scourge you. I am going to discipline you. But what if it doesn't work? What if you've gone so far away, it doesn't work anymore? First Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 32 says, Then we have only one thing left. We will be condemned now with the world. But we may not be. We are being chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. How did it begin? It began with a stray friendship with the world. We got spotted by the world. We now love the world. Now we are confirmed the pattern of the world. And ultimately God says, all my ways did not work with you. Now you are walking contrary to me. And God tells Israel, I disciplined you. I chastened you. You still did not listen. Now I going to re-raise the heat. I'm going to discipline you seven times over and I'm going to send you into captivity in Babylon and you will be swallowed up over there, most of you, a small remnant who was purified through that persecution will come back and I will start all over with them. What happened? I have condemned you with the world. With the world. Babylon was destroyed. Along with Babylon, most of Israel also was destroyed. A remnant only came back. Why? Because you said, you do not understand what redemption is. You did not understand what my plan for salvation is. I love you too much to give you away to the devil. I love you too much. You are too precious for me. But you have to make your choices. 
to make your choices. We are condemned with the world. That's what happened to Lord's wife at the gateway of salvation. Pull them out and said, go, go up to the mountain. No, that is too much for us. Okay, go to the city. Don't look back at the gates. She looks back and she's finished. What happened to Lord's wife? She was condemned with the world that was destroyed. With the world. God says, this is serious business. Salvation is a very serious business and God takes it very, very seriously. So we learn from God's history recorded in the Bible and we take heed because many, many Christians, by the time they come to two generations, three generations and all, they all start getting very, the spiritual pride sets in. Pride sets in. Even first generation Christians, especially when they have come through this thing, they have to guard their heart to see that spiritual pride doesn't come. I have seen people who have been in prison for the Lord come up and they become absolute rogues. Because what happened when they went into prison and they went into suffering and labor and all whole world knew they were praying, interceding, raising money. When they came out, they became heroes. And money was pouring in. Before you come, they are rogues in one year's life. Why? The world has destroyed you. So everybody is open to this. We have to guard our salvation. Anybody, three generations or first generation, spiritual pride comes in. Comes in and we have to be very careful. And that's what God is telling Israel in Romans 11. Therefore consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell. Severity on whom? On those who fell. Severity, but toward you, kindness. Condition. What's the condition? If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. You also will be cut off. He says consider both the goodness and the severity. Severity on those who fell, goodness on the others if you continue in his goodness. Learn from Israel, God says. Oh church, learn from Israel because he says there's a difference between Israel and between us. Jesus is the wine, the father is the gardener and Israel are the natural branches. We are not the natural branches. We are the grafted branches. But to graft us in, he broke the natural branches away. To graft us in. And he wants us in Romans 11. Come, let's read. You will say then, branches were broken of that I might be grafted in. Oh, you know what? There has a transference taken place. We are now the spiritual Israel. The eye of God's, the apple of God's eye. We claim all the Old Testament promises talking about Israel and we puff in pride. You know what? Who I am. I am this. I am that. I am. He says, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is what you say. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. Do not be haughty, but fear. Reason, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. I ask pastors, have you Ever read these verses? They say, no, we are seeing it for the first time. I said, what have you been reading all these years? Because you are preaching a polluted gospel. Without warning and keeping your flock together to walk humbly before God. You are teaching them everything about the world. How to go into the world. How to prosper in the world. Without looking at the truth 
of God's salvation has seen in the world. Why does Paul say to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Yes, we have to. Because the world will swallow us in as the Canaanites and the Amalekites and the Philistines swallowed Israel up. If we don't, we are meant to overcome them. But if we don't, they will overcome us. There is no treaty. There is no treaty. With powers of darkness, with worldliness, there is no treaty. If we don't fight it every day of our life, they will fight back. And they will take us over. And that's what God is saying. And why did this hap- happen to Israel? Why did this happen to Israel? We have to search deeper. Why did all this happen to Israel? In Joshua chapter 1, verse 16 and 18, scripture says, not John, sorry, it was Joshua. Okay? Joshua chapter 1, 16 and 18, this is what they say. A new generation. The answer Joshua saying, all that you command us, we will do. What the first thing they say? What do you tell us? We will do. Wherever you go, we will. That's how it begins. Wherever you take us, we will follow. Whatever you ask, we will do. Only thing, one thing we ask you. Just as we heeded Moses, in all things, we will heed you. Only the Lord your God. We are asking only one thing, Joshua. You walk with God as Moses walked with God. You are do like that. Whatever you tell us to do, we will do. Wherever you take us, we will go. That's how it started. In Joshua chapter 21, verse 43 and 45, and of, not John, Okay, it was Joshua, sorry. Joshua 21. So the Lord gave to Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. The Lord gave them rest all around according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. They followed Joshua, they obeyed Joshua and all God's promises came to pass. One generation followed, one generation obeyed, one generation fought their battles and they possessed their inheritance. And their children entered into the rest of their fathers. But they never fought their father's battles. Judges chapter 2 verse 10. Judges 2 and verse 10. 2. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Another generation rose. Did you see? See, we do the same things and we are all guilty including me. We are all guilty of this. We fought our battles. We grew up the hard way. We worked hard. We were taught to discipline. We knew what austerity was. We knew what it was. We knew what it was to struggle. But then when we prospered and we got married, when we had children, we what we did? We protected our children from the very battles we fought. In my days, we were never allowed to use this till class 10. Never. No ball pen are allowed in the classroom. You used a fountain pen. Fountain pen you got once a year from your father. If the nib went, you replace the nib. You don't change the whole pen. 
So you carry a blade and you carry a pen because if the nib bend, you have to put the blade in through so that the ink flows smoothly. So from that day till today, we learn to value things and not take it lightly. Never take it lightly. Never. Not that we are after things or we love things. We knew that nothing in life comes free. If you get something free, somebody else has worked and sacrificed for it. But we did not teach it to our children. We give them things freely because I don't want my children to go through what I went through. What's the stupidest blunder we made? They needed to go through exactly what we went through so they would know how to fight their battles. Instead, we protect them them from their battles. So a generation has known who did not know how God works, how God disciplines, how God trains. And they rose up. And when you talk about God and discipline, they say, ah, not like that, come so easily. They don't value God. That's the danger we get in. Same. Because comfort leads to indifference and complacency and to compromise. It can happen to any generation. Simple lesson, when you relax in your spiritual life and you stop to fight your battles, ultimately you will end up in rebellion. Rebellion. There could be a second or a third generation Christian sitting here. And you could be failing your enemies every day. Or first generation Christian. Reason is because you do not have an experiential knowledge of God. You have knowledge. Intellectual knowledge of God, but you do not have an experiential knowledge of God. They had the word. They knew the word. They knew the Torah. The first five books of Moses they knew. But they did not know the Lord. They did not know the Lord for how he works. They had no experience of how God deals individually, corporately. They had no experiential knowledge of God. That is what happens to a generation. When we don't have an experiential knowledge, that's why we say in English, experience is the best teacher. Best teacher is experience. And this is a generation who has no experiential knowledge of God. They don't have. All the testimonies you hear from a generation is what babies talk about. You know when if you tell babies to give their testimony, you will say, daddy is very nice. Why? Because he gave me chocolates. Mommy is very good. Why? She gave me ice cream. And daddy is not good. Why? He said, don't drink Coca-Cola. Have you heard their testimonies, babies? All the testimonies is with goodies. Either given or not given. That's how modern testimonies of a generation who do not have an experience with God. Oh, God did this for me. God did this for me. God did this. Do you really know God? Do you know the hand of God? Do you have you understood the discipline of God? Do you know he wants you to share in his righteousness and holiness so that you can rule with him forever? That is more interested in your character than in your comfort. Do you know? Huh? I didn't know that. Well, read your Bible. Read your Bible what God is interested in. But we struggle, we struggle, we struggle. And comfort leads to complacency. And we stop. So he becomes the God of our fathers. And we stop worshipping the giver, God. And start worshipping his gifts. That's the story we see unfolding in the book of Ruth. Elimelech and Naomi find themselves in Moab with their two sons away from Bethlehem. Judah, away from the lordship of Jesus Christ, they have a name. You know, Israel is little like Islam. If you are living in Bethlehem, you have to go to the synagogue every week. 
If you are a Muslim, living in a Muslim community early at 5 in the morning, ah, call to prayer. He wakes up and he starts praying. Yeah, we cannot escape. But you have left Bethlehem. You are in Moab. No synagogue there. Oh, thank you Lord. I can sleep long hours. Where are you now? Away from Bethlehem. Away from the Lordship of Jesus Christ. What is your name, sir? My name is Elimelech. Oh, you live in Moab. Do you know what your name means? Uh, my name means... God is my king. Oh, God is your king. And you are in Moab. And Naomi, what does your name mean? My name is Pleasant. Oh, you are Pleasant and his name means God is in the king. And you are where? In the world. How interesting. Living in Moab. Question is, are we living in Moab today? A place where you spiritually stagnate and you never grow. Are you in Moab? Where you are stagnating? Where you are starting to smell? Your testimony starts to smell? God through the prophet, we looked at the other two references of Moab in Old Testament and what God says through in the Psalms. But God through prophet Jeremiah talks something else about Moab in Jeremiah 48 and verse 11. Moab is been at ease from his youth. He has settled on his dregs. He has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into captivity. Therefore his taste remained in him and his scent has not He's talking about wine. When you are making fermenting wine, it has to be poured from vessel to vessel and the dregs thrown out. But if you leave it just like that, the wine will start fermenting and stinking. It has to be thrown out. He says, Moab is like that. As a young man, he was at ease. Mummy came in the morning and said, Munne, wake up, Munne, wake up, Munne. Please eat your breakfast. I wanted breakfast in class one, two, three, four. Get up, run three rounds around the school and come back. You get your breakfast. Otherwise, you don't get your breakfast. 8 o'clock is school. Before 8 o'clock, get ready. 7.30, polish your father's shoes until he says, I see my face on it. And then you polish your shoes and you go to school. First mine, then yours. Today we polish our children's shoes. Munne, go to school. Munne. Is it right? Moab has been at ease from his youth. He has been settled on his dregs. He has never been him. He doesn't know what hard life is at all. He doesn't know what. We are protecting him from hardship as if hardship is going to kill him. No. Hardship makes you strong. Protected him from hardship. He has not gone into captivity. We are forever praying, Lord, I put a hedge around him. The blood. Let him go to captivity and get few knocks. He will understand and experience and value his spiritual freedom. The problem is they have got their freedom so easily and so freely because they have spiritual parents who are fighting for them, powers of darkness, they don't actually experience and they they value their freedom. So God says, let a couple of them go into captivity. And they go to captivity, they'll realize, oh my God, this is what to be under the influence of powers of darkness is? Oh my God, no, no, I, I, I am going back to freedom. The prodigal son never appreciated the goodness of his father or the luxury of his home until he hit the pig pen. Once he hit the pig pen, he came to his senses and said, Oh my gosh, in my father's house, even the servants look better than this. Some of our children need to go to the pig pen before they will appreciate the house of God. Don't keep them away from God's ways. God knows how to handle every child. Every child he knows. He says, that's the problem. His scent has never changed. His taste remains the same. The beginning till the end, he stinks. Why? He has no testament. 
And who is responsible? He says, you are responsible. You brought him up that way. You could never be shaken. You could never be moved. You gave him all the comforts of life. Never allowed him to experience conflict in his life through which he would grow. And God says, this is what has happened. This is what happens. And that's what God is talking about. Where do we stand? Where do we stand today? Have you stagnated spiritually? Is there no passion in your prayer life? Has the book of life become the Tibetan book of dead for you? This is called the book of life. The Tibetans have another book called the book for the dead. But for many Christians, the book of life has become the book of the dead. Oh, so boring. Uh, so boring. So we now have to make movies on Ruth before your child will read the book of Ruth. They won't read, they'll watch the movie. Cartoons of Ruth for Ruth. We never saw cartoons, we never saw movies, we read this. We're still reading this. And those who began on cartoons are still watching cartoons. They don't read this. And Jesus said, my cartoons are cartoons of life. You shall watch it and be saved. He never said that. He said, my words are words of life. You know the amount of money that is spending into media to just to save people? Because they won't read. They won't read. Thank God for those who are working in the media and still through media getting people in. So if there is no bread in Bethlehem, it's our fault. There is no bread in Bethlehem. It is our fault. Don't ever think it's a pastor's job to feed you enough on Sunday which will make you last six days. Monday to Saturday, I'm going to eat my full today. Then till next Sunday, I don't have to open my Bible at all. It doesn't work that way. You are responsible for Monday to Saturday. You are responsible. You, I, and Jesus, we are all responsible for our own souls. Because God is faithful. And Ruth chapter 1 verse 6 says, Naomi is planning to go back because she knew Jehovah had visited his people by giving them bread. So the one who went out or the one who stayed is the fool. The one who stayed are wise. There are many in Bethlehem. Everyone didn't go to Moab when famine came. They stayed. They hung in there. They hung in there. So many people are like David, very romantic when trouble comes. Psalm 55 verse 6. Oh, how I wish I had the wings of a dove and I would fly away and be at rest. Oh, Lord, I want to fly away from my office. This is the first man I am seeing who is literally being dragged to a, no joy in him. He doesn't want to go. He's going like Joseph went to Egypt and Daniel went to Babylon. Being taken in chains, I'm going. Next Sunday when he's flying the Qatar Airways captain will be wondering why is today the aircraft not moving fast because this fellow is dragging it back. But most people how it is, Lord I wish I could fly away from my workplace, fly away from my home, fly away from my marriage, fly away from my parents. Why? Wishful thinking. On the other hand what does the prophet Isaiah say the next one? Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Not fly away. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Wait on the Lord. There were a lot of people who never left Bethlehem. They never left. They stayed there. They stayed put through the famine. 
They hung in there. They allowed God's judgment. Famine was severe for them too. But they allowed God to judge them. They went through self-judgment. They came through it all. And now they are prospering. Because God is not judging us to destroy us. God is judging us so that we would correct ourselves so that he can prosper us. Those who waited in Jerusalem. What is the difference? How is the one who went during those 10 years came back to Bethlehem? Look at their reaction. Ruth 1, 20 and 21. She said to me, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Why? The Lord Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. How do they come? With the accusing finger. What about the ones who stayed back in Bethlehem? Did you hear their response? Ruth 2. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they all answered him, the Lord bless you. What's the difference in their response? All of them went through the same famine, right? Well, Ruth should say that I actually prospered in Moab, but you didn't enjoy the world. You went 10 years into the world, you lost your husband, you lost your sons, everything. You went looking for prosperity there. You come back and you're pointing that bit wagging finger. But look at the ones who stayed. Look at how their words are different. His boss comes and tells the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answer him back, the Lord bless you. How is your testimony this morning? How is your testimony this morning? When you open your mouth, what do you sound like? Naomi or boss? Or boss servants? What do you sound like? And into that picture is coming a young Moabite widow. A picture of meekness and a picture of humility. She is given all the choices of the world and she turns her back and follows Naomi into the promised land. Where you go, I go. That's the heart of Christ. Where you go, I go. I'm going with you. His focus, Jesus' focus was on the will of God, not on his own. What is our focus today? What have we come into the house of God today? To find our own will and God's help? Or find God's own will and his help? What have we come here for today? Philippians 2, 8 will talk about Jesus, the most wonderful passage about Jesus' heart. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Humility with obedience is false. There's nothing called humility without obedience. Humility, genuine humility always leads to obedience. They always go together. He was obedient, obedient even unto death and even death on a cross. And doing the will of God. When we are humble and we obey, do the will of God, that alone can lead us to a true relationship with Jesus. And we experience the relationship with the Father. That's what will happen to Ruth. Doing the will of God through the words of a harsh Naomi will lead her to a true relationship with the God of Israel and she will be redeemed by Boaz. And Jesus himself will say in Matthew 12, if I'm right, he says, For who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. How do we experience God? How do I really in my inner being experience God and I know I am a part of his family? He says, if you do the will of my father, you will know you are my brother, you are my sister, or you, maybe you may be 33 and above, maybe you are 50 years old. And he says, I am only 33 still. And I look at you as my mother. 
You are my brother. You are my sister. You are my... Many people do not have this experiential relationship with God. Why? Because we do not do the will of the Father. We are not humble enough to bend and say, where you go, I will go. Whatever you tell me to do, I will do. He says, you will know what I am. The second area of Jesus' humility, his focus is not on himself. It is away from himself. It's not on himself. How do you know you are humble? That's the question. If you want to know, Lord, you said, humble yourself. First thing, and pray. Let's leave praying aside. Everybody prays. But we don't know we are humble when we pray. The problem is, God hears the humble. He gives grace to the humble. So Lord, how do I know I am humble? God says the humble always does the other's will. He's not always seeking his will. The humble is always seeking the will of the other. How do you know you are humble in your marriage? How do you know I can find grace in your marriage? Simple, do what your husband tells you to do. Husband, how do you know you are in the, in the, you're humble in your marriage? Just see how you can sanctify your wife. How do you know you're humble as a child? Just see whether you obey your elders. Because humility and obedience go together. Go together. It's very simple. But we complicate it, Lord, I don't know whether I'm humble. It's like the two ducks and the frog which was in the pond. They all had a wonderful relationship. And then one day the sun came like here. The pond is drying, 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 drying. And the duck said, the, the, the swan said, on the other side, there is another pond full of water. We can take you there. How do we take it? So they devised a plan and they got a stick and told the turtle, bite onto this. And the ducks took, the swans both took both ends and they were flying and flying over the farm. And the farmer looked up and said, wow, what a wonderful idea. Whose idea was this? And the turtle said, mine. And dong, he fell. Because he couldn't just, my idea, I'm brilliant. That's the problem. Humility. Second area of Jesus' humility, his focus is not on himself. It is on others. In Luke 19 and verse 10, scripture says, the son of man has come to seek and save that which was lost. He's not on himself. I have come here to get a kingdom. He says, no, I have come here to seek the lost. Come here to seek the lost. First Corinthians 10 and verse 24, scripture says, let no one seek his own, but each other, each one, the other's well-being. How do you know you are, you are humble? Proud people are self-focused. Somehow have you noticed these people never ask how someone else is doing because they have no time for it. All they are telling others is how bad they are, their life is. How terrible I am, you know what I went through and that's because of that one. They never ask the other one, wait a second, how are you? They're so self-focused. They never think about somebody else's well-being. So many years in prison as a slave in the dungeon, Joseph one day looks butler and the baker. Why is your face so downcast today? What happened? He was seeking the well-being of somebody else. That is where his deliverance begins. And they said, we had a dream. 
And he said, tell me the dream, maybe God will give me an interpretation. How was he able to see somebody else's sorrow when he should have been so full of his own sorrow by saying, I never did anything right. I was obedient to my father. I went to look after the well-being of my brothers and I was trying to be chased in the palace and look at my son. Nothing. Nothing. Did you see? How do you know you are humble? That's what Naomi says. Don't call me. Naomi. You know what Proverbs 11 verse 25 says? He who waters will also be watered himself. And I will use the term. He who refreshes others will be themselves refreshed. Are you a refresher? Are you waiting for everybody to come and refresh you? Do you know what is the saddest words recorded in the New Testament? Human point of view. Jesus had just told them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I am going to be arrested. I am going to die. I am going to be crucified. I am going to go through all of this. His heart is broken. And he says, one of you is going to betray me. This is the last communion. The last supper of his. And you know, immediately as he finished saying, what did they say? As soon as he finished saying this, you know what's the next words recorded in the Bible? There was a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. See the depravity of the human soul even after walking with Christ and seeing a selfless person giving out his life for the others at the most painful moment of his life when he's sharing his heart out to what he's going to go tomorrow with his disciple. The next thing they are discussing, which among us is greatest? Do we see? But God can redeem them too and make them into powerful witnesses. So understand this. Some people, someone said humble people don't think less of themselves, meaning they are not inferior. Humble people don't think less of themselves, they just think about themselves less. I hope you understand English. If not, meet me after. Of many people who have visited and volunteered Mother Teresa's home in, in Calcutta, the missionaries of charity, there's a lady who said, she always, she said, I could never ask her. Always used to wonder, does she have leprosy? She didn't have leprosy because her feet were so deformed. Mother Teresa's feet were so deformed. So she always wondered, why is her feet so deformed? Then she asked one of the nuns there, why is Mother Teresa's feet so deformed? She says, from years. You know why? She says, you know what? We run this home, this orphanage. All the stuff we get is donated. All the shoes we get is donated by others. So Mother Teresa will always go and try to pick the shoes which will fit nobody else and nobody will wear so that others can have the better shoes. And all her life she's been walking around in shoes which doesn't fit her, which nobody else will take. In the process her feet has become deformed. But I believe they are one of the most beautiful pairs of feet in heaven today. Because she was not thinking about her feet. She was thinking about making somebody else's feet comfortable. Have you understood what the kingdom is all about? Jesus' focus was not on himself. It was on others. If you listen to Ruth in a consecration, it's not about her. It's about you. Where you go, I go. Where you live, I live. Where you, your God, my God. Where you die, I die. Where you bury, I... It's all about the other. It's not about herself. 
Nothing is about ourselves. It's about the other. How do we live our lives? How do we know we are humble? How do we know? The questions we need to really ask. Why are we empty? Why are we so bitter? Why are, why are we, we have so much more than any generation? Yes, we are so upset. Third part of humility. Jesus seen in Ruth. Each one of this is seen in Ruth. The son of man came. For what? No, the next one. Mark 10 and verse 45. Mark 10. Can you go to the next one? Even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve. What did he come? Not to be served, but to be served. This was his final lesson to the disciples. He says, if you really want to be happy in life and to be fulfilled with life and experience the presence of my father with you every day, learn this lesson. Not only look outside and not inside at your own situation, look outward at others, also try to serve. In John chapter 13, verses 12 to 15, when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. What did he say? He says, Serve others. Don't wait to be served. Serve others. You know, we all read about Romans 12 when we talk about the perfect, pleasing, good, good, pleasing, perfect will of God. But God tells about the church there. Romans 12, 3, it says, For through the grace given to me, everyone who is among you, not to think himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. What is that? God has given everyone grace, He has given everyone one measure of faith. Everyone he has given a measure of faith. But wait a second. We not only have been given a measure of faith and grace, we also have been given different gifts. Verses 6 to 8, Aaron. Having then the gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. All of us don't have the same gift. Hundreds of gifts in the kingdom of God. Everybody sitting here has one gift at least, if not more. Everybody has what? One gift. God says, let us use them. What are you supposed to do with it? Let us use them. If prophesy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, whatever ministry it is, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives in liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. He says, do you know the gifts in the kingdom? And he says, are you using it for others? That's the question. Are you using it with for others? That's the first thing you hear from Ruth in Bethlehem. What are the first words of Ruth in Bethlehem? In Ruth 2, 2. What did she say? She said to Naomi, Ma, can I go please glean some field? Ma, can I go? Glean some. That's all. I told you last Sunday, the most difficult, most disgusting job in Israel is to be a gleaner. You are a practically a beggar. Gleaning, cleaning, cleaning like a beggar. What leftovers you are picking. That's the first thing she says, Ma, can I go glean something so that I can bring it back for you? Whom is she trying to serve? She's trying to serve Naomi. She had plenty in Moab. She could have gone to her father's house. But she says, can I go glean for whom? 
for her. Naomi won't go. Naomi is sitting there. I am Naomi from Bethlehem. I don't glean. Oh, I can't. That's too, too. She has no money. She is hungry, but she won't glean. So many people in US especially, so many like they are living on food stamps. They can work, but they won't work because their work is below their dignity. And so many Indians too. Like I said, Indians have dignity only in India. When they go outside, they will work any work. That's why you will see in US in car washes. What are you in India? MBBS MD. What are you doing here washing cars? Why? You have no dignity there. There of course I need a board under this thing. I will not do that work. So many men won't ever enter the kitchen in their life. Why? Oh, that's a woman's job. Really? Jesus cooked for his disciples. Was he a woman? He was the most manly man ever who walked on earth. Enter the kitchen once in a while. It is good for you. And some of you who don't know how to cook, unlike me, if you cook, you will appreciate your wife's cooking. If you don't know how to cook. Ma, what did she say? Can I go? And she said, okay, you go. Chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. So she gleaned in the field until evening and beat out what she had gleaned. And it was an ifa of barley. How much? Ifa. Ifa is like, if you measure in terms of liters, I understood it is 22 liters of barley. That's almost a sack full. This girl from morning till evening taking one short break, worked, gleaning, not harvesting. What is it? Gleaning. Cleaning, cleaning, brought one sack full. Boss had given her stuff to eat. She ate it and she put quite a bit away. She took it up, went into the city and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. She brought parched corn, everything. She packed it for whom? Her mother-in-law. Do you know why she was redeemed? Because God was looking for one more way to be redeemed. No, he was looking for a person who was willing to serve others to redeem. Redemption. I'm not saying she's saved because of her good works. I'm saying we are saved to do good works. That's why James will say, pure religion, faultless religion. Even if you are a religious person, what is pure religion? Faultless religion. What is it? You forgot already. James chapter 1 verse 27, right? 26 or 27? Pure, 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. What is it? To visit? Offense? And? Why? How does it become pure and faultless? Because offense have nothing to give you back. Other than trouble. You expect something from your own sons and daughters. When I grow old, take care of me. Okay, what are the offense going to do for you? Nothing. What are the widows going to do for you? Nothing. He says, that is the test of your service. You do to those who cannot give anything back to you. That is the test. And that's where we fail. That's where we fail. He says, this is pure, undefiled religion before God. What is it? To take care of orphans and widows. That's how the first century church began, taking care of widows and orphans. Those who had nobody, they could come. and They said, we'll take care of you. You don't expect anything from these children. Nothing. They will grow up. They find. Do we? I told you opportunities are there if you really want to serve. Go take care of the orphans. Go to the old age homes. Go take leave and go. Take care of them. Once a month. Twice a month. Go. Go. 
How real is our religion if you consider yourself a religious person? That's why Jesus said, if by people, called by my name, humble themselves, humble themselves, restoration, redemption, deliverance, harvest, will all come. The first thing we have to do is humbling ourselves. And Jesus told. So even this morning when we come to this table, you have to humble ourselves to come to this table. Because Jesus humbled himself, he came to this table. And we have to consistently humble ourselves. How do we see ourselves? Where do we stand? Do we do another's will? Do we see outside of ourselves? Can we be called to serve others if needed all our life? Think, meditate, ruminate on what we have heard. We all have fallen short. We all have fallen, gone astray. But here, don't use Isaiah. Now when you come to the table, personalize this and says, I have gone astray. I have. Because sometimes it's easy to hide in a crowd. But when God comes to us, he doesn't see the crowd. He sees the individual in the crowd. Zacchaeus, come down. He sees you in the crowd. And I in the crowd has to say, Lord, I have gone astray. I have fallen short of what you intended of me. I come to you so that you can restore me. That I will go out and continue serving you, Lord. More and more. Not less and less. Yes. Father, this morning we come before thee. Search us, O Lord. Search our hearts. Search our minds. Search our lives. All that you say wrong is wrong. All that you say is sinful is sinful. All that you say is wicked is wicked. We stand by your judgment and we confess you are right and you are righteous. And I pray, Father, that you have mercy on us. Mercy upon us, Lord, as a people. As the elements, the symbols of your body and your blood go among us, I pray as we partook of it, we will be healed, we will be strengthened, and there will be a quickening in our spirit, O God, that we will go forth to serve you even more with dedication, with zeal, and with strength, O God. Thank you, thank you, Father, thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Shepherd of my soul, I give you full control. Wherever you may lead, I will follow. I have made the choice to listen for your voice. Wherever you may lead, I will go. Be it in a quiet pasture
or a vile gentle stream. The shepherd of my soul is by my side. Should I face a mighty mountain or a valley dark and deep, the shepherd of my soul will be my God. Shepherd of my soul, oh, you have made me whole. Wherever I hear you, how my tears flow. How I feel your love. Oh, how I want to serve. I gladly give my heart to you, O、oh、Lord. Be it in the flowing river or in the quiet night, the shepherd of my soul is by my side. Should I face the stormy weather or the dangers of this world, the shepherd of my soul. Will be my God. The shepherd of my soul will be my God. So this morning, as we are in the house of God. We began looking at the cause of famine and the cure of famine. If it is God who is the cause of famine, then the cure is only in His hands. And He said, "If my people, who are called by my name, if they humble themselves." As we close, I want to look at a couple of scriptures, and then we come to the end.、I、want to read from Daniel chapter nine? We can read actually from verse one if you have it. Verse one onwards, one to five. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king of the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish seventy years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord to God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, "O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from Your precepts and Your judgments." Experts say this is the sixty-seventh year of Israel's captivity in Babylon. That Daniel was probably reading from Jeremiah 29. For thus says the Lord: After seventy years are completed at 
Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Then I will call upon, you, you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. They say he is almost 90 years old when he's reading the scripture. He has nothing to go back to. He's too old to go back. If you know history, for all probability, he's been made a eunuch. He has no wife. He has no children. He has no future. He has no wife. He has no children. He's not going, going to go back to Jerusalem. But when he opens the book of Jeremiah and reads and calculates, he realizes only two or three years are left for the captivity to be over. And he takes his royal robes off. He's number two in the kingdom. He puts it all aside, puts sackcloths, puts ash, goes on his knees and starts crying out for a people that they will go back to God's land. The question is, Will we? Will we? Will we? That's this man. That's his prayer. That's what he's praying. And when he prays, he's talking and taking responsibility. He's probably one man who has never rebelled against God or gone against his word. But he says, I stand in their place and I say, we have sinned against you. We have gone against you. That's why we are here. Now Lord, remember your word. Have mercy and let this people go back. Are we like that? Or are we more like Hezekiah? Hezekiah also had a judgment pronounced. Daniel also read a judgment pronounced. When Hezekiah heard the judgment pronounced, this is what Hezekiah said. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, what your fathers have accumulated until this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Was Daniel one among them? So Ezekiel said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. Is? Good. Oh, praise God. You said it, what can I do? But what is he thinking in his heart? Will there not be peace and truth at least in my days? Doesn't matter. I am not going to go through it. I am not going to go through it. It's the next generation. How does it matter? It's not going to happen during my times. I'm not going to be taken a captive. captive. Or are we going to be like Daniel? Or are we going to be like David? Another judgment. And we close. Second Samuel. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because of this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. The Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose, went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Another man. So it's a judgment has come. The judgment has begun. 
And he's on his face before God. Not asking for mercy for himself. He's asking mercy for the child. He could have said, okay, fine, let the child die. Another child. I've got so many sons anyway. I am free anyway. I am being forgiven. I am being forgiven. God has declared, I have taken your sin away. And so many of us are like Hezekiah. Oh, I am saved. Thank you. I am going to heaven. What about the next generation? What about the others? What about the others? So many sitting here, especially sisters, have so much time in your hands. So much time in your hands. So much time. My question to you is, when you stand before God, what will you say about your time? What did you do your time? Yes. To the older generation sitting here, I would tell, you may be younger than Daniel. Daniel is at least 87, 90 years old now. Okay. Yes, it is good you pray for your children. It's awesome you pray for your grandchildren. What about others' children and grandchildren? Daniel is not praying for his children. Because he has none. He's not crying out and standing there and sitting there before the Lord for somebody, his grandchildren. He's crying out for the children of Israel. He could have said like, Hezekiah, how does it matter? I have reached the peak. I am number two in this empire. Israel in all its glory was not even one-tenth the size of Babylon. I am the most powerful man after the king in Babylon. Kings have come, kings have gone. I have always remember, remained number two. I am raised my zenith. But he's taking his royal robes, everything off, and in sackcloth on his face before God, crying out for somebody else's children. Do we? Do we? We cry out for our brothers and our sisters. What about Others, brothers and sisters. We cry out for our parents and our uncles and aunts. What about others? That's why God says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves. That one word, humble, has got so much depth. So much depth, so much meaning. That's why D.L. Modi said, those who are humble do not stumble. So this morning, just ask, where am I focused on? Doing my will or God's will? Is it on myself or it on others? It's on being served or on serving. Are we meek? Are we lowly? Are we really humble? The greatest promise for those who love this earth. There are many who love heaven. There are many who love earth. But for those who love the earth, the greatest promise is blessed are the meek. For you shall inherit the earth. Now the earth is the hands of the proud. One day, there is a reversal. God says, hand it over to the meek. They shall inherit the earth. So you have seen today, how do we know whether we are humble, how humble we are, how we grade ourselves. Don't put it on your notice board, please. Okay? How we actually look. Am I really humble? How much of my thoughts are spent on myself, on others? How much of my time is spent on myself and on others? How much of my time I do my will and how much of my time do I do God's will? Simple. Shall we stand? Father, this morning we come to you as your blood-washed children. We too are your children. 
we became your children because natural branches were broken off and we were grafted in we too have your name they had the name israel we have been given the name christ your name but often father your people go through famine if you are the cause of the famine then i pray reveal it to your children today for if you are the cause then you are the cure if you are not the cause then your grace is sufficient in the famine we will reap a harvest a hundredfold but if you are the cause show us that we may humble ourselves and pray and seek your face and turn from all the ways that you say are wicked even if it look good in good in our own eyes that you may bless us heal us and restore us commit this month into thy hands and i pray your presence would go before us that you would continue to teach us your ways and show us your paths and give us the strength to obey and to follow after you hard after you because it's in your presence alone there is rest it's in your presence alone there is true spiritual victory it's in your presence there is healing for scripture says the hem of your robe fills the temple and we are your temple we touch the hem of your robe there is virtue there is healing there is power there is strength for us help us to believe a god and move on with you fighting this good fight of faith while keeping the faith as we run this race that you may receive all the glory all the power all the honor of god that you may be glorified you may be glorified Daniel in his prayer as he said over and over and over and over reminded you about your people for your name's sake for your glory for your glory lord not for our glory not for our church's glory not of any ministry we do for your glory and your glory alone oh god arise oh god thank you thank you father we now just lord we lift up holy hands and we bless your holy name We bless your holy name. We bless your holy name. For in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. In the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide with each one of us. Amen.